The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Well, a year on from those amazing floods that hit Auckland on anniversary weekend and then a few days later swamped the Hawke's Bay and the east coast of the North Island, let alone Northland, with the worst rains we've seen. And which, it's clear, uh, were at least partly caused by the heating climate. And we've only just begun, really. 2023 was a year when we, uh, for the first time, went over one and a half degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. And it's clear that as we heat the planet, the storms become more frequent and more intense. And the Cyclone Gabrielle and Auckland anniversary events were the fruit of that climate change. Uh, And a fairly bitter fruit it was because we weren't ready. And the question a year on is, are we more ready than we were a year ago? And sadly, the, the answer is no for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, the response to Gabrielle and the Auckland anniversary floods was the usual ad hoc deal with what we've got in front of us right now with the resources we've got in front of us and just make it up as we go along. And some amazing things and good things were done. But as the floodwaters receded and as we understood the piles of silt that meant that large parts of, uh, for example, the Esk Valley and, of course, many parts of uh, West Auckland uh, and the east coast of the North Island were likely to be uninhabitable and that the homes that had been valuable and uh, someone's home were suddenly no longer a home. The question became, how are people going to be compensated? How are they going to be helped? Are they going to be hung out to dry? Uh, literally. And that um, it became a really complicated and difficult question for councils, for the government, and then ultimately for insurers. Because there's a bunch of actors at play here, some of whom want to work together, some of whom would like to shift the cost to someone else, some of whom are completely shocked and weren't thinking that anything like this would happen. Others who knew something like this would happen and didn't really want to be there when it did and are thinking further ahead to a climate that had that will warm two degrees, maybe even three degrees by the end of the century, and thinking ahead to what sort of events that might create. A year on from these floods, 
we aren't ready. We don't have a Climate Adaptation Act. It's not clear next time who will pay to rebuild the bridges and the roads and the railways, exactly who will get bought out if their home becomes unlivable, exactly whether those homes can be insured privately in the future or whether we'll need some sort of state-funded hazard insurance. These are questions being asked all over the world as reinsurers who seem to be at the, at the front of the curve, the pain curve of having to deal with these catastrophes start to pull out of markets. We've seen Florida, California, parts of the United Kingdom, and of course, as we've discovered over the last year, some parts of Aotearoa New Zealand become uninsurable. But this is not in any sort of organised or frankly uh, sane or fair way. There's a lot of ad hocness about it. Should someone who bought a very expensive but crumbly piece of land on a clifftop, should they be should they should they be compensated by taxpayers and ratepayers at large, or for someone who's been in a property for decades and decades before anyone was talking about climate change, should they be compensated? None of these questions have been resolved in a climate adaptation act, and the sense we get a year on is that no one really wants to have that tough conversation because when you do, the answers are ugly. They are, you have to move out of your home and you may not be fully compensated. Or that second or third home, that batch, the one that you could live without, maybe you won't get any compensation at all. And then questions like, who will pay to insure and what about those people who actually can't afford the insurance or maybe uh, agreed to a policy years and years ago, particularly if it was uh, the, a policy that paid for the cost of rebuilding, that doesn't actually mean that they can rebuild their home anymore simply because of the increases in costs. We're at a point now, for example, where still homes are being approved in Auckland in floodplains. 1,873 homes in Auckland have been approved on floodplains since the Auckland anniversary floods. And we've just heard this week from the Hawke's Bay that a bunch of people who are being told to get out of their house are now being told by their council, who believes they can't afford it, that they have to pay to demolish the house. We're in a quite ugly place a year on from the anniversary floods. And it's worth, therefore, looking at the potential costs and the implications of not uh, uh, coming to grips with this issue. This week on When the Facts Change, we talked to an economist who's done some deep work into the costs, the implications, whether we should be doing things like building stop banks or investing in resilience rather than insurance, and also uh, how we move forward in a way that means we aren't bankrupted, but that we are prepared because the climate change isn't going away all that quickly. And it's simply a matter of time before we have another Gabrielle this week on When the Facts Change.
Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Roshan Kulwant, a senior economist at the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, who's just produced a paper with uh, fellow um, economist at the NZIR, Michael Beeling, about the issue of resilience and climate change. It's all very topical at the moment because it's a year on from the Cyclone Gabrielle and the Auckland anniversary floods. Uh, welcome in to When the Facts Change, Roshan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm I'm one of those um, geeky, nerdy, economy-type people who thinks when there's a big event, what's this going to cost? Where are the numbers? How many million? How many billion? Um, who's going to pay? Is it fair? All of those sorts of things. What did you find when you, you looked at the data and the papers and what's gone on about how much these two events together have cost? So that's a bit of a simplistic question to a much bigger answer or topic. Um, I find that usually the the more, more the simpler the question is, the harder it is to answer a lot of the time in economics. So it's a very case of, you know, uh, a storm rolls in, or there's a flood, there's a lot of damage. We're saying, okay, well, how much is the damage worth? Uh, and that really, what we found is that really depends on, on who's looking at that cost and who's calculating that cost and what cost they're interested in. There was a lot of discussion and a lot of media on the cost to there from the of the North Island weather events. But a lot of that was really focused in on the insurance costs. I think ICNZ um, had estimates of $3.56 billion across just under 120,000 claims for Cyclone Gabriel and the Auckland anniversary weekend floods. But again, that's just cost to insurance. And being economists, we know that the costs are much bigger than that and much wider than that. Um, it's not just how much is insurance on the hook for? It's about what is the cost to business from not being able to operate? What is the cost to um, from the damage of infrastructure and people not being able to go to work or uh, provide for their families? And it's also the kind of over, uh, wider well-being cost as well. There's been a little bit of work done to, to look into that, but uh, from Newman and Noy that we quote in our, in our article, but at the same time, that that tries to expand on that and really looks at the kind of loss of value of life. But there's a lot more in that in terms of, of mental health impacts. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you're right. Um, we've all looked at the um, private insurance toll, but there was a lot of uh, damage, um, uh, both physical and uh, not physical, that hasn't been measured and um, hasn't been insured. Could you talk about the uninsured part of the damage? Yeah, so this was actually something that was really difficult to pin down. There have been some estimates, and really the, the, the one that we found was from uh, an international reinsurer, Munich RE, where they've said that, uh, you know, of the Auckland anniversary floods and Cyclone Gabrielle, that around a third of the physical asset damage was uninsured. So that's a pretty big proportion in terms of understanding that that that's not being compensated, that, that people and businesses are on the hook to pay for that themselves. Yeah, and do you, do you think that um, uh, we're in a, a better position now if there was to be, um, touch wood, it doesn't happen, but if there was to be a repeat of one of those massive events. Do you think that 
we're in a better position to deal with it in terms of uh, insurance and and also the financial arrangements to uh, for councils and governments to handle not just the cost of the emergency response, but also things like um, buyouts of uh, properties that are no longer uh, habitable or, um, you know, washes, wash, bridges that have, and roads that have been, and railways that have been washed out. In terms of, of are we in a better place, it really depends on uh, how, where do we expect the next big event to, to happen? When do we expect it to happen? how big is that impact going to be or how big do we expect it to be? How many people do we expect to be impacted? How do we expect that to be impacted? All of that really feeds into to answering that type of question. And in terms of making sure that we're prepared and, and ready for something like that, it, it goes down to there's more than just one role to play here. There's the role for central government. There's the role for local government on behalf of ratepayers. There's a role for... Uh, insurers, and there's also the role for property uh, owners and investors. Everyone has something to do to increase their own resilience. So it's a case of, you know, how what do people need to know and how big is that information gap of what they don't know for them to be able to start investing in these areas. Yeah, because one of the ways to deal with these potential storms and floods is to, you know, build up your stock banks or raise up your houses or whatever it is, rather than just buying insurance or, heaven forbid, just hoping it doesn't happen. So um, uh, how how should we think about this problem of, um, well, we should invest a lot of money in stop banks or we shouldn't because it, that actually would cost more than the potential damage. What, what's the sort of framing we should put on it? In terms of, of how we should frame this problem, we really need more of a standardised approach and a standardised basis of information for everyone to look to when they're looking at, you know, how vulnerable am I? How much, in, how much do I need to invest? Where do I need to invest? Even understanding kind of, you know, is is your house in a floodplain? Understanding all of that will give you the the capability and the knowledge to, to look to solutions that you can start implementing. And really, the from an economics perspective, the market failure here is one of asymmetric information. People aren't aware of, you know, the how much they're... they're how much of the cost they're on the hook for. And you know, we're seeing article come out where people are talking about, you know, they, they weren't insured for the total cost of the rebuild of their property and that they weren't aware of that. And, and that's really key is for people to understand, okay, well, how much am I on the hook for if something like this were to come in? Because you can understand how, why people would think that, oh, I've got insurance, I'll be sweet, when it's not really that simple. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. 
Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. So what sort of information should people be uh, looking for and also how could the government and councils provide the right type of information so everyone is informed as completely as possible at the same time? Because you're right, there's a risk here that some people know a lot more than others and can, you know, flick on properties or or choose to insure or not insure uh, knowing that someone else might pay. The key role for the government is to reduce some of these barriers that that you know various roles, not just not just uh, people and property owners, but also communities and businesses and insurers and uh, local government. Reducing some of these barriers like information uh, information asymmetries, um, any uncertainty, and to support efficient and equitable outcomes. That's really kind of where we propose the government's role is in in our piece there's a lot of information out there that's one of the the kind of learnings that i had from from doing this research is that there is a lot of information out there in all these various forms and it can be really difficult to try to tie it all together to be like okay well, well what is it what is the risk profile for me for for my property for the area that for my community or my area that i live in and that's a really difficult question to answer. So there could be a lot more, there's a lot of work to do in terms of standardizing this information and putting it out there for people to take on and to be able to digest and use that information to make informed decisions about where they invested their own resilience. Then on the other side of things, there is also the kind of moral hazard of the government becoming the insurer of last resort. You mentioned earlier that there's things like um, you know, council buyouts and government buyouts. And there's a risk that that's going to become a bigger and bigger check to write as because we're starting to see private insurers pull out from really high-risk areas. You know, the, the government coming in with its categorization framework for natural hazards, we're seeing insurers uh, say that they're not providing insurance or going to you know, with, withdraw from insurance in category three areas. And that leaves a question on, okay, well, if an event climate event were to happen in those high-risk areas and there is no private insurance, who's on the hook to pay and how much? Yeah, it's fascinating to think about who knew what when. Uh, as a as a the journalist in me um, always wants to, to know when a decision was taking, what the decision maker knew when they took that decision. Uh, and um, the chain of decisions, if you like. And because 
climate change in particular and the likely intensification and more frequent uh, climate events shouldn't be a surprise to any, anyone who's been paying attention. And at some point, you'd have to think there's a cutoff where if you happen to buy that um, big fancy house at the top of the cliff and um, shock horror, uh, there's a storm and it tumbles into the sea, at what point do, do the rest of us say, actually, as a ratepayer or as a taxpayer, I don't feel I should have to compensate you with some very large amount of money for um, coastal <laughs> property um, because you should have known. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really tough conversation that we need to have as a country and, and kind of make a decision. And we talk about a couple of frameworks that could be applied. One of them is the ACTA framework, which is avoid, control, transfer and accept. And at what point, you know, do you put in measures to, to avoid the to risk or avoid the damage? At what point do you try to control for some of those risk and damage? At what point do you transfer it off to someone someone else? We're seeing that with the, the insurance uh, scenario. And at what point do you accept? Do you accept that this is, you know, this is the risk that we're willing to to take and we'll make an informed decision. But at yeah, at the same time, you know, how do we wanna deal with this as a country and how do we make sure that we have a standardized approach to making these decisions and it's not you know different based on where you live or who your your kind of regional authority is and it's really about cool well you know if you want to build a house on the top of a cliff this is what you're dealing with and this is uh you know you know either we step in or we don't yeah because at the moment we uh, don't have a climate adaptation act which does look to answer some of these questions about um, sharing of the costs between governments and councils, between the government and private insurance, um, uh, deciding where to build. Because as we've learnt this week, um, more than 1,870 houses have been approved to be built in known flood zones after after the Auckland anniversary floods. Uh, and it appears that the law, um, resource management law, the various rules around consenting, don't actually stop a council or prevent a council or from, from approving, um, you know, building in a floodplain. There are roles to play for the various actors in this kind of overarching issue is the fact that what can be done to de-risk some of these areas from flood impacts. So we see, for example, in Germany, you have flood passports where you can come in and get a get certification around and get your house assessed for flood risk. That comes with a, a bunch of recommendations around what you can do to then mitigate some of that risks. And insurance providers have responded to that by then kind of reducing premiums or providing discounts on premiums and so there's always a bit of a trade-off and there's always a, a, an action and a reaction in terms of, of how the market works. We really need to understand kind of what the trade-offs are. We need to understand what the likelihood of the impacts are and how big those impacts are likely to be. And that's the key missing piece right now. Just finally, um, having looked at this uh, most closely in, in recent months, what's your sense of who's the best informed 
in terms of the risks of more of these climate events and the potential damage, who's who's really um, at the at the front of the curve, if you like, in terms of understanding the risks and preparing for them? In terms of, of who's best informed, it, it really varies. There are a lot of property owners who understand their risk profile very clearly they're, and they're making those trade-offs all the time. But at the same time, there's a lot of modelling that goes on in, in the insurance industry because they have a lot of incentive to understand the risk that they are wearing when it comes to the potential of paying out an insurance claim. But at the same time, there's a lot of work being done in government, in central government, across various agencies, uh, various uh, ministries, various crown departments, where there's a lot of you know climate impact modelling that's happening. But again, the key the key point isn't necessarily like who's who's the best informed. It's the fact that there's a lot of information that exists in each individual pocket. And what we really need to do is really bring all that information together, standardize it and put it out there so that we can all be as informed as possible and we can all make the best decision and decide on what trade-offs we're willing to live with for the investment that we're willing to make. Roshan Kulwant, a senior economist at NZIER, talking there about um, climate risk, insurance, resilience and um, preparation for... um, Another event like Gabrielle and the Auckland anniversary floods, touch wood, hopefully not anytime soon. Uh, Roshan, thank you very much for coming on to Win the Facts Change. Thank you. Win the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.